uh, Michelle presented the path of insight very beautifully last night, beautifully forgetting that we're actually doing metta and the Brahma Viharas this week. But actually it's really, um, it's beautiful in another way too, because the Brahma, Brahma Viharas were around prior to the time of the Buddha. Uh, people used them to get really concentrated and, and happy and peaceful and serene and tranquil and blissful and ecstatic and attached to all of that. Uh, and most meditation probably in the world is leans toward that, leans toward feeling good. And of course we all want to feel good. The Buddha in his wisdom collected all the prevailing teachings of the time and, and used them uh, with the inside of his own awakening. So he took the Brahma Viharas and infused, infused them with wisdom. So we often talk about the Brahma Viharas being the foundation or stepping stones toward insight, but we can say it really the other way around, you know, that wisdom is, is already a foundation and wisdom in in terms of um, what is called parami. Parami means spiritual, inner spiritual virtues. And uh, it's those that draw all of us here. They're qualities we all hear about, like generosity and, and sila, integrity, um, and renunciation, another word for meditation, moment to moment letting go, and energy and wisdom. Uh, and patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. Those are the ten paramis. So all those you can understand, just to make sense of that word parami, it just captures all those really skillful qualities that we develop when we practice, and that somewhere along the line in our many lives, we, we've developed enough parami that that's what draws us to the Dhamma in the first place. And if it, maybe to hear it or read a book. And if it's stronger, maybe to do a sitting, you know, at some, at some place that offers a sitting. And then maybe a day long, maybe a weekend, finally a retreat, uh, until the point of no return. We're, we're, we're in it deep enough, we can't turn back even if we wanted to. So it's, it's parami, you know, is, is the essence of Michelle's talk last night, the value of that wisdom. Then you understand what we mean when we talk about metta uh, imbued with wisdom. It's what makes it truly selfless, universal love, non-possessive love, uh, boundless love, immeasurable love. One way of Describing the uh, the Brahma Viharas is the four Im the four immeasurables because there, there's such boundless immeasurable Im immeasurable qualities each one there's there's no end to their extent of influencing uh, our own depth and the whole universe 
the Buddha said that just even the whiff of a scent of metta is, is more potent than all other mental states, save only a moment of insight. Because, because of what Michelle said last night. You know, wisdom is liberating. The kind of what we talk about when we talk about wisdom is not something intellectual, conceptual, rather an immediate intuitive knowing or illumination. Like if you came here in the dark of the night and couldn't see a thing and just, you know, felt around for a candle and matches, lit the match and ignited the candle and then suddenly what was dark is illuminated. Wisdom or insight works like that. Intuitively, an immediate intuitive knowing, illumination, realization. It feels like it's more from here, more from the gut, more from the heart, and than from the head. What often happens in a moment of insight is it's, it's followed for some moments or longer then with intellectual reflection, oh, what just happened? You know, we sense a shift and suddenly what we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, our, our knowing in the thought realm is different. It's a little different. Maybe our attachments are a little loosened and it's like being able to step back a bit and see things as they really are without the habit of self-referencing, identification, you know, my body, my pain, my thoughts, my emotion, why that happened and just the prol proliferation that happens through that. So we're grateful for the wisdom talk last night because it makes it easier to start doing the <laughs> Brahma-viharas, the immeasurables, uh, today, I'll just briefly describe all of them, and in case some of you are are new to them, metta is the word for uh, friendliness, the quality of being a friend, affection, uh, that quality of warm, tender, um, softness. You may begin to feel there's no one way to feel it. So having a preconception of what we're supposed to experience or feel, you know, just throw it out. Throw it out now. Everyone experiences it differently. You know, it might start with just the, the smallest little uh, ember of warmth in the heart. You know, after doing the phrases for a while, trying to kickstart it, it's a use of concepts, skillful use of concepts. We want to really drop um, into the meaning behind the phrases and feel the emotion of being safe, the emotion of being protected, the emotion of that kind of happy heart that's momentarily free of distress, and the an emotion of a balanced body or healthy body relatively speaking, and the emotion of caring for ourselves in this uncertain world, joyfully, happily, peacefully. So those four phrases, they, they come from 
traditional Pali phrases. Some are just altered for our particular understanding, convenience, and use. Some are more, are quite literally translated. Uh, but they all are just four ways of describing the same thing. Metta does have universal selfless love does have the power to protect from inner and outer harm and does have that power to de-stress the mind stream, the heart flow. Does have the power to balance the body, to heal the body. I can speak to that experientially and does have the power you know, to be a, a lens through what, through how we experience the world, instead of immediately having the habit to judge everything. You know, metta is like this huge net that can that can catch and hold anything, and, and then and then from a metta consciousness, sort of dispel or throw out or let go what we don't need, and to hold and care and nurture what is of value, what's of worth. So metta is what we'll be focusing on, you know, for at least another couple of days. I'm going to mention all of them because they'll all, they all have already come up, probably, whether you know it or not. And we're not, we're not, um, we're not going to force ourselves to form fit in, in an orderly way, you know, first just metta and it, Never mind the rest, because the need may come up as uh, I think this morning a question someone had, where it's it's compassion that's the the skillful approach, the skillful means, the necessary response when something hurts. So the second Brahma Vihara Karuna uh, is uh, translated as is compassion. Again, compassion with wisdom. And, and very different from feeling sorrow or feeling grief. Those are other states, those are other qualities. Compassion, we know it's true compassion of the Brahma Viharas because it always feels pleasant. It's never unpleasant. So if we feel that kind of compassion, if we feel compassion-like qualities sometimes, you know, but there's, if we look closely, it's more leaning toward grief or sorrow or pity, then it, it's not this pleasant feeling tone that accompanies genuine compassion. doesn't mean we don't have tears of compassion. We can, indeed. Um, but they're not self-centered. This is a selfless compassion. That's what the wisdom does to all of these qualities. It, removes a self-centeredness, self-reference to what we're feeling compassion for. So compassion is caring for hurt, stress, anxiety, fear, pain, suffering in ourselves and any, any being. That ability to attune connect with their feelings of pain, anxiety, fear, 
loss uh, and care for them. To connect with our own feelings of, of, of fear, anxiety, loss, and, and care for that, those feelings. Care for that pain. Caring feels good. Caring is, is a pleasant state. And at first, maybe, it will be more like feeling sorrowful, feeling bad, feeling uh, despair, you know, pity. Uh, and then another moment might be a moment where you feel that care and you feel that it has this, this beauty, this beautiful quality to it. It feels really lovely to be caring. Even when there's real tragedy. You know, I've mentioned, you've probably heard me say many times, most of you, about uh, being around both my parents, uh, but just to take my dad tonight, and feeling a whole range of emotions. You know, gratitude, and, and grief, and sorrow, and you know, I was with him when he had his last breath, and then I stayed with him for an hour, after that, uh, and just with a sense of holding the space for however and wherever he may be moving to or through, or you know, I have no idea. I haven't died yet, so I can't tell you. But I was sure that my dad was moving through something, and and it was really important to be there. And I think what I could say held the space that I didn't think about at the time, only later, was this presence, a compassionate presence that could hold everything, including my own grief and, and sorrow and, and sense of loss and all the lovely things. I, I you know, started thanking him for everything, everything that he ever gave me that was good, especially from his good heart, you know all the things he taught me and whatnot. Uh, and so just let myself be there. I let myself grieve. It's important at times to build a shelter for our grief and, and go through that process of mourning that allows it then to turn, the, the grief turns into a gratitude, turns into a care, a compassion that holds any space for anyone's suffering. That's why these are called immeasurable or boundless. Because if we look at you know, the whole world, if we have a sense of the whole universe coming into being and existing and then vanishing, I mean, all the time there's stars dying, there's whole galaxies exploding and disappearing. And that happens on a large scale and it happens on the most smallest scale in, in little beings in, in, in ourselves. Things are coming, arising, existing, and then disappearing. So turning that, turning that compassion and care, whether to ourselves at first, maybe that's what's most needed, if we can, if we can feel that care and compassion for ourselves. Traditionally, we usually begin, the instruction is begin with someone you know, some being you know, it might be your, your, your pet or your friend or a family person that's suffering somewhat. Um, 
And so, but, but not so big that you might be overwhelmed with their suffering. Just enough to take a, like a homeopathic dose in, you know, and be aware of their pain. And then try to get that, that care flow going. That's the compassion, just simply caring. And so a phrase that Michelle came up with uh, many decades ago is, you know, I care for your pain. I care for your suffering. I care for your loss. And, and then just kind of dropping into the feeling quality of that and until you may not need the phrase anymore. And, and compassion is just that one phrase. And then like with the metta, when we feel it, let go of the phrases, that, uh, that dwelling in, abiding in, the quality, being metta. So with, care, with compassion, it's just being care. Being care. And uh, let, let, just let the thoughts you know, come and go. Try not to go into a story as much as possible. It's the same with Vipassana. We, we try to stay with what our intention is. So if our intention is to cultivate loving kindness or compassion, then we, we want to steer toward that as much as we can and stay on course with it. Um, as we, I spoke about today in, in my group, um, you know, if, if we can, we, we feel metta toward, toward anger if it comes up, which is the opposite of metta. If we can, we feel care toward uh, some cruel thoughts that we might have, mean thoughts that we might have. That's the opposite of compassion or care. So we try to hold that with the very quality we're developing. And if that doesn't work, then that's a good time to call up our, our wisdom practice, our mindfulness. Mindfulness with wisdom is able to completely see and feel that difficult state that comes up, that anger, that cruel moment. Feel the sensations, you know, disidentify with it. Feel its feeling tone of unpleasantness, usually anger and cruelty. Um, and you know, to dis dismantle the habit of identifying with it, clinging to it in some way. And then when that can just take a few seconds and then we can go back to the compassion, back to the, the metta. The, th the third Brahma Vihara, which might be really useful uh, at any time, today, tomorrow, you know, before we get to it as a, with a, the formal instruction and introdu introduction, it is the joy we feel wherever we connect with happiness, fulfillment, beauty, goodness, wherever we find it. The traditional way to start it is first to, to think of someone who it's effortless to feel joy for their happiness. Someone who's currently experiencing some fulfillment, goodness, their life is going really well. And, and so, so to think of them being happy just brings out our deepest non-sensual joy 
spiritual joy rather than envy or jealousy. So that's why we want to choose carefully at first to, to make it strong. Because it, in fact, it is this mudita, empathetic joy, that's the source for overcoming our woundedness from feeling unworthy, inadequate, not good, not good enough. It is the mudita that's the primary cause for, for bringing up our goodness and overcoming shame. So it's, it's, each of these has a special result, a special effect from his cultivation. They're all about connection. They're all about other living beings. They're all relational in that way. They're all selfless. They're all ultimately leading and feeding and nurturing the path of wisdom. Uh, so the fourth is uh, called upeka, uh, literally meaning to, um, to look upon or look over, as opposed to looking away. So it's the subtlest of these four spiritual emotions. Subtlest, subtle for many reasons, because it's this, it leads to this nearly perfect equanimity or balance. And the feeling tone here is neutral, where the first three Brahma-viharas are all pleasant, metta and compassion and mudita, joy, pleasant feeling tone. The emotion of equanimity or equipoise is, is, is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So mostly we mistake it for indifference, you know, a lack of care, lack of connection. And it's just the opposite. It's the reason why metta stays metta and doesn't go into forms of attached love, which we'll talk about in further explaining metta, or, or compassion sliding into sorrow, and grief, pity. It's equanimity that keeps them from going into their near masquerades are their opposites, you know, anger or cruelty. Uh, the opposite of uh, empathetic joy is envy and jealousy. Uh, so the equanimity is, is, is like the queen of the Brahma Viharas. It, it, it sustains and nurtures and keeps in balance all, all the other Brahma Viharas. And then in its own right, the quality to, you know, when we've, the sense of sometimes exhausting our compassion, maybe work we do to help others, to help the planet, and, you know, to make a difference. And, and sometimes it just feels really tired, really weary. And it's like, so I, I don't have enough compassion or, you know, how, to, how, how can I keep doing this? That's a perfect time to, to lean back in, on equanimity. Because equanimity is a very profound, unconditional acceptance of things as they are right now, right here and now. It doesn't mean that we stop. It means that we're resting for that moment or those moments or you know, as long as we need that equanimity to recalibrate, recharge. And, and then again, we call up 
the energy that we have and the compassionate intention and, and do, do what we do, do all our work to, to make a difference, to make a better world, to make, carve out a better sense of ourselves, you know, transform our own personalities and so forth. Um, that equanimity makes all of that happen because it's not attached to results. You know, so how do we cultivate this unconditional love w without expecting a result? We're so trained and conditioned to expect a, a result of some sort. It's equanimity that lets go of attachment to results. That is just the stability, the stabilizing force of balance. Now, another important thing to no, to keep in mind is that if we're practicing any one of these, all four are, be, are, are practiced. The stronger metta gets, you'll find that when, you, when we do formally go on to the compassion, that it's, it's, it's really much easier than we imagined. And likewise with the empathetic joy. Cultivating one is cultivating all four because they're so intertwined, interconnected, inseparable. So though, though we start with metta as a foundation, both for our journey, liberation, wisdom journey, and for the Brahma Vihara development, and it doesn't mean, as we spoke about this morning, that there won't be a time when the empathetic joy is because you start feeling really good in, in, at certain points in doing the metta. Uh, at a certain point, you might start to feel overwhelmed by the good feelings from doing the metta. And it's so beautiful here, and anything here can be the object of metta, the sea, the sky, the forest, and just how you feel in, in, in moving around in this beautiful space and so forth. And any time you might start to feel overwhelmed or just a lot of joy, you can call up the, the empathetic joy that is take delight in that happy feeling from the cultivation of loving kindness. Take delight in the beautiful feeling of caring you've been practicing and you start to feel that, that, that goodness about it. You start to feel the profound pleasantness of caring so you appreciate it. Empathetic joy is appreciative consciousness, appreciative awareness. We very rarely express that appreciation. Our culture teaches us to compare, compete, judge. And you know how often in our lives did for no reason at all did someone come and just appreciate something about ourselves, you know, and, and, and teach us the value of that emotion appreciation and, and likewise did we learn to express our appreciation uh, enough you know a little or medium or a lot you know because you, you know how it feels when somebody expresses their appreciation of something you just said or something you that you've done and, and to say oh, that's really lovely what you just said or it's really beautiful what you made or what you've done, you know, other th whatever about your life 
they're expressing that appreciation for really makes us feel seen. It really draws out our goodness, our loveliness, our beauty. You can see how they can all be of of great value and why sometimes um, you find your doorway, your entry point, in one of those four. You know, so we're, we're moving along and, and it's, it's valuable to stick with one for a, a while and, until you start to feel some traction with it. Uh, but something comes up and another one may be the most appropriate one or you may be just drawn to the compassion right from the beginning or the empathetic joy right from the beginning. Remember I said practicing one cultivates all of them. So if you feel that draw, try it out. You, you don't want to be kind of jumping around a lot. You, you do want to have one sort of stabilizing Brahma Vihara to be working on most of the time until we give the instruction of the next Brahma Vihara and then you want to make that your, your primary one, being open to whatever is most useful at the time. Whatever arises, difficult state, then caring is usually appropriate. You know, energetic, happy things, happy things, qualities, sensations, thoughts, and so forth. The, the mudita, empathetic joy, appreciation, is most appropriate. When you start feeling the mind being kind of reactive uh, and now attached, now aversive, and kind of in that way, chaotic and scattered and opposing, the equanimity comes into play. It removes that reactiveness, dispels the reactivity, attachment and aversion. Um, Metta is my own inspiration, I think, for practice. Years ago, 1975, I did a a retreat, um, one or two weeks, at a trailer camp in Malibu, California. <laughs> and um, and there's two young teachers, Jack and Joseph, were teaching it. And at some point, I got introduced to to Deepama with a photograph because we hadn't met her yet. And um, you know, later Michelle actually worked with this amazing Bengali woman uh, from India who went to Burma and practiced with uh, with Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, our teacher's teacher, uh, so broken that she was crawling up the steps into the woman's dhamma hall, uh, and and then so put back together again from her practice physically and emotionally and with just amazing uh, attainment, very profound attainment 
even more than she needed. <laughs> Along with the wisdom came uh, some apparent psychic powers as well. And she was just a lovely, soft presence. Loved being around her. I, I, I did meet her a year later in her uh, very run-down apartment in Calcutta. You know, many flights of stairs and passing many huge rats on the way who are also going up or down. They seem to have their own way and their own run of the place. And there's this, this woman living so simply and so alive and so joyous all the time. Uh, Michelle once asked her, you know, Deepama, what's in your mind? And she said, three things. Loving kindness, concentration, and peace. Michelle says, is that all? (laughs) (laughs) And that's enough. So I ended up hearing about her, and I ended up hearing about the Brahma Vihara practice, um, which neither Jack or Joseph knew how to teach had trained in it as yet. <clears throat> um, we all later learned from Upandita. Uh, but they told me about it and I just, it just turned me on, you know. I, I love the idea of it, the very little that they, they said about loving kindness. I wanted to do it, so they gave me a picture of her and toward the end of the retreat, I've been doing Vipassana, I had uh, good practice, satisfactory practice. Took the photo and went into, I stayed in one of the trailers at the trailer park and put the photo down and just looked at it and just sort of naturally, organically, uh, intuitively just felt this flood and flow of, of metta. I was probably overwhelmed, you know, and I didn't know about equanimity or empathetic joy. I didn't know what to do with all that energy. Way too much energy. You know, I just had to stop practice. That, that was my way of dealing with it. Okay, I'm taking, I'm backing off of this. It's, it's like being too close to a fire, you know. Uh, but, you know, in little bits, and uh, little bit times, I, I do a little more until I, it just, it, it's what led me to Realizing that this is my this is my path, without even yet having gone to Burma and meeting the, the sort of head of the tradition, Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, and the, let alone Upandita, who became my personal uh, meditation teacher, I, I just I felt like I'd come home which is how we feel actually when we do these Brahma-vihara practices. As the emotions grow stronger, we feel incredibly close to ourselves and to the earth and to all beings. This incredible oneness. I was saying to the group this morning, Vipassana and the Brahma-viharas do the same thing. Dispel that strong, contracted 
egocentricity. Vipassana does it by dismantling phenomena. It sees things in terms of elemental nature. The fire, water, earth and air qualities, the hard, soft, vibrations, tension, heat and cold. Tension are support and movement, oscillation, vibration, just the exact, what we call body. What we call body is just all the expressions of elemental nature. And then to see emotions and be, learn how to just be with an emotion without the story about the emotion. Learn how to untangle identifying proliferating stories around our emotions and feelings. And then we learn how to look right at thoughts and the same thing, just see them the same way we do sensations. They virtually are sensations. They're just mental sensations. Thoughts are just these energy impulses that come and go very quickly. You know, so fast that we can't see how, that our very attachment is what stitches them together into stories that we then place ourselves in, identify with. And then, you know, there's an inside and an outside and an I and other and us and them and so forth. All that gets dismantled. And so that's how Vipassana... The, begins to re release that solidified sense of something existing apart from experience, the self, permanent self. And, and the Brahma Viharas do it through expansion. The boundless nature, as, as, the, as a, uh, this morning I mentioned how abiding is radiating. We don't have to think or imagine, or, or do something to, to radiate loving-kindness, or compassion, or joy, or equanimity. If we're abiding, the radiation is happening. We have to just trust that. And then the more we abide, the more is that sense of expansion. And any solid, contracted you know, uh, sense of a separate entity is dispelled through that expansion. Try it, you'll, you'll see. Uh, Mahasi called this the path of love and understanding. And Brahma Vihara is, of course, is that, that love aspect, that love uh, complement, you know, or for many, the stepping stones. Uh, I think. Sayadaw Upandita saw what I needed. And, and, you know, what I needed was something that was, that felt beautiful and, and brought out my worthiness, you know, over, that began to overcome my shame and, and, and grow larger than that, those feelings of shame and inadequacy and so forth. And, and so he, he taught me first just the first Vipassana and then, and then the Brahma Viharas at the monastery, they teach Vipassana uh, as a rule um, prior to loving kindness. Because uh, people who just practice the Brahma Viharas go into the very deep concentrated states and get attached to them, to the, the bliss and the peace and the tranquility and the serenity and the ecstatic 
states and happiness like we've never experienced before. You know, why wouldn't we get attached to them? Uh, but, the, so, but the emphasis is, is the wisdom, because the wisdom dispels the very forces that prevent the natural shining forth of the Brahma-vihara heart. Wisdom dispels all the hindrances, all the obstacles. So generally, they want a satisfactory uh, uh, vipassana practice before they'll teach practices like the Brahma-viharas. So eventually, I, I learned the, the Brahma-viharas separately for long periods of time, months at a time. And then Sayadaw taught me a way of interweaving. So I would start with Brahma Viharas, maybe a week or 10 days, and, and then uh, come, come out of the Brahma Vihara and set my determination for, for moment to moment, seeing clearly things as they are. And then if I grew tired of that, and maybe that's one of the reasons he did, because I, I, I had all this energy. You know, maybe came from that trailer park, I don't know. But I had so much energy when I practiced with him. I, I sleep a, usually no more than four hours a night, sometimes just two. And so I would practice for 20 hours a day, making everything my practice, whatever I was doing. Toilet, dressing, undressing, eating, every slightest thing, you know, reaching for something. It's like moving underwater and just always aware of the, of the water t around the body, you know, m moving in that way is like that moment-to-moment -moment awareness always being, always being with us. But still, I grow tired or I overextend uh, and too much energy would be often my hindrance and I'd crash. So by learning this interweaving process, I learned to go back into the Brahma Vihara and rest, rejuvenate, reset. And in 20 minutes maybe, something like that, and then back out to moment to moment seeing things. Actually, I, I feel like I've been walking underwater for the last four months. I've been in retreat for the last four months. The, the retreat where I had the stroke, the, is, it's just the conditions are really good for me to practice there. So I, I managed to practice as well as teach the retreat at the same time. And, uh, and you know, having help, having help there as well. I've had Jake, I've had Darine, um, so I don't have to do everything. Uh, and this was another one, another retreat like that, where I'd be up at four or so, and in, in practicing in, in the hall. And this one morning, it was the last day of the retreat, the ninth day of a 10-day retreat. Uh, you know, it was a great, beautiful, morning and stars are out and I started early and then the yogis come in the morning sit at 5 or 5.15 and then we sit an hour. Uh, so it just seemed like any other sitting. Uh, you know, I'm still trying to understand what happened because 
to me, nothing happened. <laughs> I've just been in retreat, <laughs> and I'm still in retreat. <laughs> but I had this pain, just a little pain I get sometimes, just above the hip, the one I had replaced five years ago. And so I just, I just bent over like this, my head down, kind of to stretch it. And then I don't remember. I have to ask Darine. I haven't had the opportunity to ask her. Apparently, I then laid down on my side and then went into this undulation, which sometimes is actually a phenomena that happens in Vipassana practice. Uh, but that wasn't what it was. <laughs> I don't remember undulating. I was just told that I was doing that. I, I remember pressing my legs down, my folded legs down on the floor. And at times it felt like someone was pushing them back up. So I'd, I was in this kind of dream state, or as I said to my group today, phantasmagoric. And someone asked, well, what is phantasmagoric? And I said, well, it's a Greek word. And it means, you know, wild and mysterious images, imagery. That's like a dream state. It can be like a dream state. And, and so I remember, I, I recollect I had this phantasmagoric dream state. And, and then pushing down and imagining I was pushing against someone. So am I pushing against Darine? Or Julie, the movement teacher on the other side? Or the yogis sitting in front of me? And I had to open my eyes and check. No, it's just the floor. You know, everything's okay. And then again, I kind of forget, and then I do remember, well, it, it, it must be 6.15 now. And so I just sat up and rang the bell and gave what I'm told was a very short, clear Dhamma talk. <laughs> and then I stood up and then just listed to my left side. And I had to, I had to put my hand on the table supporting the Buddha. <laughs> and, then, and then I took the next step, which was outside, and didn't know that I probably would have fallen, but suddenly, suddenly a yogi's hand was under my arm, supporting it, and, and led me back to my room. I still didn't think anything was wrong. And I, I just thought I needed, I guess I needed a nap, you know, I've been up since 3.30 or 4.00 just rest for a while till breakfast and so I lay down and then had breakfast and then and then I had taken Caitlin off retreat the day before because it was just time for her to start to stop and integrate before we left so she had been out kayaking looking for the elephants this is in a jungle on a lake floating retreat lake and a hundred sixty million year old remnant tropical rainforest. So we're surrounded by elephants all the time. Uh, in fact, the elephant troop just had a, a second baby. They had one in November of 2017. So they stayed around while the baby grew up. And now they have to stay around longer. Because <laughs> they last couple weeks ago they had another baby. It's really cool. It's awesome to practice surrounded by elephants. 
a powerful symbology in, in the Buddhist tradition as well. So when Caitlin came back, you know, she, as a health professional working with Aborigines in the Western desert, remote areas, that as soon as she saw me, she, she knew that I likely had a stroke. She saw, just saw, I mean, I could still look pretty normal, but listening to the left, probably a lot more than, than I do now. And, you know, then it was just an hour by boat to get off the lake, and another couple hours to get to a really crappy hospital you never want to go to. But I had to, to get permission to fly uh, to Bangkok, to a really good healthcare place that I was very, I've been very familiar with for over 10 years. And then there I was in, you know, ICU for three days, uh, and then another four days uh, in another room. Uh, just wondering what happened, you know. <laughs> Trying to figure out what happened, and uh, this incredible help from everyone, you know, Caitlin and Michelle at home in Hawaii. Jesse was actually at the hospital be before I arrived because he happened to be on his way to Burma, so he was in Bangkok, and he heard what happened, and he was there to greet me <laughs> when we arrived, um, and you know, I just like. There's so many people in this room that I owe immense gratitude to. Uh, my doctor, Lola, is here, and my, her husband, my good friend Trent, and Jake, and Darine, and uh, of course, you know, Jesse, and Michelle, and Caitlin. It's like, you all, they all, and all of you, by your care and your love, saved my life. Uh, I would have just rested and gotten up and, and finished the retreat. <laughs> and been finished, probably. Uh, so, yeah, oh, oh, I just feel lots of gratitude. And, and I have this, I have, I've totally surrendered to this process and, and the, re, the rehabilitation I'm doing in Chiang Mai. Uh, Pilates and, and Tai Chi, which I did as a young man, uh, and acupuncture, uh, sometimes with, well, often, almost all the time, with the electrodes on my left side, which reminds me of the, of the doctor, the neurologist. When he'd come to see me, he had this sharp object that he poked me with. Does this hurt? Does this hurt? No, no, it didn't hurt. You can do anything to this side. If you cut my arm off, I probably couldn't feel it because it was a lot more numb than it is now. And then he poked my other side. And I said, ouch. Oh, you feel that? Yes, I do. And he kept poking me. Owie, ouch, ouch. <laughs> and I immediately thought of this comedian character that, that Jake and I like to um, have fun with at times. He, he was a high school mate of mine, friend, and, and he broke the mold of Hawaiian comedy, Hawaiian-style comedy. Everyone, every comedian there, all these decades later, he passed away in the 80s, stand on his shoulders. Uh, 
And so one of his skits is he's this doctor, Dr. Souza. And, and this man comes in, Mr. Barboza. And he, and he wants to uh, quit smoking and, and curb his appetite so he can lose some weight. And, and so Dr. Souza says, oh, so you, you want to curb your appetite and lose some weight? And Mr. Barboza says, yes, 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 I would like to. Well, good. Just come over here and please sit on this 60-volt battery. <laughs> and every time you have a craving for one cigarette or some food, I'm going to push this button and you're going to feel an outrageous shock. <laughs> and this will help you curb your smoking and your appetite. Oh, oh, okay. Thank you, Dr. Souza. And sat, sits down on the, on the battery. And uh, Dr. Souza says, yeah, are you feeling okay, Mr. Barboza? Oh, yes, I'm very relaxed. Oh, good. Well, perhaps you would like a cigarette. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> no, 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 I don't want a cigarette. Oh, you sure? You sure? One cigar. <laughs> and he said, okay, I think that's sufficient for your uh, craving for smoking. Now, let's see, after all that work, how do you feel? Oh, I feel okay, Mr. Barboza says. And, he, and then Dr. Sousa says, oh, I bet you must be hungry now. <laughs> oh, yes, so Mr. Barboza. <laughs> Again, shock, shock therapy. And this is based, if you've ever been in Hawaii and see people make this sign, shaka, it's like, how's it, how are you? Hello, goodbye, how's it going? You just see everyone doing it out the window. If you don't know what it is, it probably looks really weird. But if you watch any shows on Hawaii, you'll see them doing this shaka, shaka. So it's a play on that, shaka therapy. <laughs> <laughs> so he does the same thing with food. You, you want a hot dog, potato salad. <laughs> you want rice. And each time, of course, he got shocked. And then, okay, I think this is good for today, Dr. Souza says. Do you want to pay by cash or credit card? <laughs> oh, I think I'll pay by credit card. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm thinking all these, I'm remembering all this story while the neurologist is poking my right side, which is super sensitive because I can't feel anything on the left side, so all my feeling has moved to my right side, right? Oh, no, 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 I'll pay cash, I'll pay cash, I'll pay cash. <laughs> okay, then, good, I'll see you tomorrow. No, no, I'm never coming back again. <laughs> oh, I'm coming, I'm coming back, I'll be back. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that lightened the load a little bit. It was, it was intense. It was really intense, and I'll address more of it later, but I want to end with part of a letter that my friend, my best friend from school, my friend of 50 years, sent, John Hart. John Hart. And we had just, Caitlin and I had just um, finished a long period of my rehab in Chiang Mai, and the air was bad from the slash and burn um, technology of 
agriculture up there. Uh, and so we went down to the beach for a week. Uh, I, you know, had, I, I spent a week there, and then I went back f to resume the therapy. Hoping this finds you safely at the beach, comfortable and safe, although I have a sense you have not really felt comfortable or safe since your stroke episode. And that though you are doing every day everything you know to do to heal yourself, nevertheless, this is still, there is still all the damage that the clot did to cope with on a daily basis. And that especially one of the difficult things is the anguish and frustration that occurs and living with the damage that has been done to your sense of self and body-mind. So I feel like you are probably feeling very alone at times with this. Which, let's face it, Stephen, we are alone with it. Really, it's nobody going through this but you. That is how I felt at times. Just this last very scary cardiac episode in June, I felt very alone with it. My own fears and apprehensions, the fear of more damage and more disability, frustration and upset with being more dependent and needing more help or extra care and more diminished physical capability. I'm pretty sure you experience a good part of this in your own unique way, different from me, but still your own hard place. You can find a place of understanding with the changes in your body, mind, and relationships. But right now, your life as you knew it is broken and lost. Your old relationships, the ones before the stroke, are over and gone and done. There's no going back to that. Just like knowing going, no going back for you or me to the person, athlete, physically gifted people we were before our wound. You know, the old idea of ourselves and relations as a beautiful piece of uh, pottery that sometimes needs to be broken in order to create a new vessel, a new form to hold your life now. Broken vessels hurt. You are my dear, dear old friend, and I hold you in my arms and weep, too, for your hurts right now, and all the, all the things that feel broken. That's unconditional love. Just sit for a moment. Feel what's in your heart.
it, it's time for half an hour of walking and then the metta chants it. Time to learn that beautiful metta chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.